Welcome to Boardroom's Best, the premier podcast for CEOs, board directors, investors, and those who want to lead and serve in the boardrooms of public, private, family-owned, and high-flying entrepreneurial companies. Now with your host, Nancy May, CEO of BoardBench, let's charge ahead with great leaders worldwide as we learn how to foster the best in ourselves and our firms with greater courage, confidence, and character. Hello, everybody. Welcome once again to another episode of The Boardroom's Best. I am your host, Nancy May, here at the BoardBench Companies, and I have my guest visiting us or in on the radio, on the show, from Ontario, Canada, and that is Jim Estelle. And Jim is a serial entrepreneur, a corporate board member, and an all-around like amazing and interesting fellow that I know you're going to get a lot of a lot of good resources and information from. So welcome, Jim. We are happy to have you here at the show. Well, thanks for having me. Jim, you have, and I'll just share quickly with our, our guests, you have an interesting background, not just as an entrepreneur, but also somebody who has built and launched public companies from private companies, so from the ground up kind of version, as well as the history of being the founding chairman of Research in Motion, otherwise known as BlackBerry. Yeah, and I was the found. I was one of the founding board members. I was not the founding chairman. Founding board member. But, but yes, I was a founding board member of uh, BlackBerry. But at the time, BlackBerry was more startup-ish, so it was not much corporate. I joined them before they were public. But you have that that experience of going from that early, creative, very innovative stage through the public process into one that's a little bit more rocky, which is what many corporations are in today, especially with this coronavirus. It's just freaking everybody out. Yes, for sure. And now you're into a couple of other new ventures. You've got Danby Appliance, yes, which is a fascinating company doing some great things with very simple products, our everyday ovens and stoves and dishwashers that yeah. we wouldn't be thinking is too sexy. Exactly. Well, so I bought Danby. It was about a $400 million company. So it, it was an existing corporation. I didn't start that. And you're right. We are basically a boring appliance manufacturer. We make fridges and freezers and wine coolers and stuff like that. But from that, you've also created something that's a little bit more innovative, which is ShipperBee. Yes. Now, first, I created a product called Parcel Guard. Mm-hmm. So I was in the factory saying, what can we make in the factory? We were thinking, obviously, appliances, appliances, appliances. And then I said, no, no, we're a company that makes big boxes. So we came out with a smart mailbox, which is a big box to receive Amazon shipments or shipments from wherever your .com deliveries are from, basically to stop parcel theft. And it sends you an email or a text to tell you that the parcels arrived at 10 o'clock this morning. And if the parcel is too big to fit in the top, you can give someone a one-time use code and they can open the bottom or if if you're doing a return, that kind of thing. So that turned us into or got us very attuned to parcels. I did a lot of research around parcels and the growth in the parcel market. And that's where what hatched the idea for Shipper B. So you can protect against theft from the guys on your front door. That's what Parcel Guard does. Now, it protects against theft just the same as your car door locks protect against theft. I mean, you can still break the window. You, I mean, it's pretty rugged, but you could. Stick your hand in the box. Well, you can't stick your hand in the box. No, it's got a one-way uh, thing, just like a regular U.S. mailbox. But you could take a sledgehammer or something, presumably, take a chain in a truck and pull it off, right? Absolutely. Well, you can do that with an ATM machine. Yes, but in some cases. But that becomes a lot of work. 
and it's like the lock on your door, it stops most people. Or like the lock on your car. People don't go through your car because it's locked, but a window is pretty more breakable than a parcel guard. I guess so. I've never tried to break a window, and I've never (laughs) tried to break a parcel guard, so I guess I'm I'm not a thief. (laughs) 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 So let's dive a little bit into some of the concepts of being a director, but actually being a good advisor of a company that is in this growth mode and how to how to help them over that early exciting stage to becoming a more viable sustainable corporation what are some of the things that you see in the best directors that do that so i believe that they should make suggestions not be directive. So the the nose in, the, the fingers out kind of thing, as everybody says? No, not nose even... in, fingers out. But at the same time, I'm a real creative guy, so I have lots of suggestions. Hard. Maybe this will work. But the entrepreneur has to say, yes, it is a good idea or not a good idea. And I'm not saying you must do that. It's just, here's the suggestion based on my experience, this might work. And where I find board members that don't add as much value, they're the ones that try to be very directive and say, when I started my company or when I had my business, this is the way we did it. But even if you had identical business, it's not identical time. Correct. What worked 10 years ago, like I'll tell you, the way to sell it, you send a lot of faxes. (laughs) (laughs) A what? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. But you get it. I do. It's... A different different time period might be different uh, selling. So it's more of the historical director, the person who's rested their laurels on past success, as opposed to those who actually know how to to sort of see it and work with eyes behind them, kind of like our mothers did that we always knew growing up, right? <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And I think another role of the directors can be to look ahead as the company grows. Because uh, I, I remember when I was growing my business, my father retired, he came to work for us, and, and he said, you need a purchase order system so you can know what you ordered. And my brother and I, who are running this little business, and I said, why do we need that? We remember what we ordered. And of course, that's not scalable. So we put in place a bunch of processes and reports and stuff that at the time, when I was running a very tiny business, I didn't think I needed. And then by the time I left my business, I was doing a couple billion in sales, and I didn't know anything unless it was on a report right. or unless the computer said it. Because you just didn't, you didn't ship everything yourself. Right. But the process-oriented type of person is very corporate mindset in general, not necessarily those early stage entrepreneurs. And sometimes even the later stage entrepreneurs, like you said, brother built this company and was starting to grow, but you, everything was sort of in your head, but it wasn't organized in a way that made it scalable or sustainable, correct? That's exactly right. So not every director knows how to think ahead. They know how to see maybe two feet in front of them, but when the lights are out and you have to work in the dark and sort of feel your way around, they wouldn't even know how to get to the, and now I'm, I'm not pointing fingers at every director, but it takes a really special kind of mind to think that way. So how do you encourage that kind of thinking or instill it in something, somebody that's been around for a while that may have lost that skill or even that desire? Or can you? I'm a big believer in humility. Okay. And I believe good board members are humble and know they don't know it all. Mm-hmm. And if I go into a situation, if we go into a situation, we know we don't know it, then we will suggest other people who might be able to help. And then we will ask for help. And then we will look at other situations where if we think we know everything, we can't learn. So I think if, you, if directors have a learning mindset and a humility, 
those are critical characteristics for good directors, in my opinion. And you can learn that. Right. I mean, it's not rocket science, unless you're one of the people that believe you, you know everything you can't learn, in which case, you know, you're starting to uh, need to go out to pasture. Yeah. You're also in the, the venture capital and the investment world. And some of those, I'll put in quotes, guys, you know, girls and guys, yeah. uh, tend to be the know-it-all type, which is very difficult in that environment, although they're looking for new ideas and opportunities to invest in, but they do follow a, a rigid path. And I am putting them all in sort of one category. I know that's not necessarily correct, but it, there is a lot of them that are kind of like that. So, you know, when you're looking for money on top of it, it's avoiding those kinds of mindsets who are going to have one hand in your pocket. That, that's kind of tough to do. Clearly, it is tough to do. I mean, you obviously are about board members. Right. And good board members are very hard to find, just like good entrepreneurs are hard to find, just like good CEOs are hard to find, and good leaders and good CTOs are hard to find. But if you want to be a good board member, be a constant learner, have some, some humility, and make suggestions, don't direct and don't think you're running the business. So what do you do when you're screening out somebody to assess those skills yourself if you're bringing somebody onto a board? Because you've been there. Right. Um, the best thing is just like when you're bringing on an employee, and that's essentially to check references, although it's not as formal as screening an employee. But my experience is if someone who knows that person, ideally in another board context, I will always try to talk to them because they usually will be honest about whether the person was disruptive or helpful <laughs> because you need a balance also. You don't want someone who steals the floor no. and talks all the time. You don't want someone who doesn't contribute anything. I've been on boards with an ex-prime minister of Canada, mm -hmm. very, very high stature person, shows up at the board meetings, hasn't read any of the material. Oh, that's frightening. Doesn't, right? But he likes to talk. Grandstanding. And so you don't need someone to come and hold court Yet he's got the profile, and so everybody says, oh, what a win. You got the person on the board. Politician, yeah, not necessarily not always the best person for you. In that, Yes, in that case. Now, I'm sure there are ex-presidents and ex-prime ministers who are not like that, but the one that I happen to, and of course, I can't name names, and of course, the problem is he's going to listen to this. He's going to know who know, it is. but nobody else <laughs> okay. needs to know. That's all right. <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. So we've been through a very rapid growth of sort of innovation and creativity in, in the last couple of years. And the, and the market has gone crazy. I mean, I'm not sure whether that's because of innovation or just sheer optimism in the consumer market. But we're now sort of heading into just in this last week, I call the, you know, the, the palm up against the, the forehead kind of get flathead syndrome. What are some of the things that you think that boards need to even consider as we go into this next phase, partially because we're being pushed by this coronavirus, which is scaring the heck out of everybody else right now? Is that something that you can, you're concerned about as a director? And what do you do about it? Oh, of course. I think every company needs to have a coronavirus plan. And it's not, I'm not talking necessarily just about how to stop it at your company. I'm talking about what do you do when your supply chain doesn't get you the product you need? What do you do when your customers don't buy as much product? What do you do when people are quarantined and don't buy products? You have to have a, make the assumption this will get a lot worse. I, it's not as bad as people say it is, and that most of the people that die, I hate to say it, they're sure. relatively old, relatively sick. And uh, put it in perspective, there's 130 thousand people hospitalized for the flu in, right. in uh, the United States. 10,000 people died. Right. You know, that's, that's a lot of people died of the flu. And I'm not, 
shutting my business and quarantining everybody because of the flu, right? I'm glad to hear that you're not panicking. However, in this particular case, because the media has taken it to such an extreme, it's something that perhaps we need to even think about more about doing a scenario planning in boards for particular disasters. After 9-11, there was a lot of that that took place. What do we do? It's sort of hindsight as opposed to foresight. Right. And, And I think that one role of the board is to look at the risks in the business. And that could be a risk of uh, pandemic. That could be a risk of terrorist uh, item issue. It could be a risk of financial meltdown. It's everything from the little risks, like interest rates could go up. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're pretty darn low right now. Mm-hmm. What happens if interest rates double? I mean, that would be not a big stretch. Doing those sorts of things, that is a great role for the board, partly because management is usually so pressed with the day-to-day, they don't have as much time to sit back and look and just look at that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And in between those discussions and those exercises, how or do you actively or have you actively gotten involved a little bit more to help a management team that just might be sitting there with their heads turning around in circles like Linda Blair, the exorcist, not knowing which direction to turn because there's just so many fires to put out at the same time. Do you step in and help out? Well, partly what a board can do is provide clarity of priority. The problem with entrepreneurs, of which I am one, so I speak of them fondly, is they have too many ideas. We're a little ADD at times. (laughs) Exactly. They're ADD with too many ideas. Right. But the key is which idea or just just a couple of ideas are going to move you forward. It's the 80-20 rule. Right. You're going to get 80% of the result from 20% of the action. Put your actions onto that 20%. So boards actually can provide a very good, very good help by helping provide that clarity. At the same time, the board may not know, and what they do is they can make suggestions. Good entrepreneurs need to filter those suggestions and make it theirs because it, no two times are the same, no two markets are the same, no two... Uh, situations are the same. Yeah, that's a delicate balance for a CEO of a company, whether it be an entrepreneurial or a public company, to say, you know, great idea, next. Right. We'll listen, but we're ignoring at the same time. Well, I know when I was scaling my first business, I learned when I was scaling that it's not what I do that takes me to the next level. It's what I give up and what I don't do. Interesting. Tell me a little bit more about that. Well, so what I would do when I was doing 50 million in sales, I'd study companies and meet with people who were doing 100 million. When I was doing 200 million, I'd meet with people doing half a billion. And then I, I just kept on looking at people that were doing more, higher and more sales. And, uh, and what I learned is the only way for me to scale personally was for me to give things up. I cannot be the main salesperson. I can't be the the main account. I I can't do it all. And so what do I give up? But to some extent, that's the same with company focus because I'm running Danby Appliances right now. You might say at the end of the show, you've got this great idea for me. You know, we can sell a million dollars worth of product. I get it, but a million dollars doesn't kind of move the needle and how much resource and is that worth it? And that's the one entrepreneurial bright spot is there's a right size business opportunity for every business. So if you're running a small business, you can go into a small niche. Someone would love a million dollar opportunity in the appliance business. And I, as a $400 million company, I compete with $10 billion appliance companies. When someone says they want to buy $3 million of blue fridges, I'll say, no problem. What color blue? The big guys would say, well, we'll send an intern to talk to you, but they don't start till the summer. That's the speed to market or just the speed of of moving on an idea if, in fact, there's something valuable there. It's the speed. 
speed, which can be a problem for well, size. Well, it's the speed combined with the uh, exactly combined with the size. So it's like me saying, I've got a great investment for you, guaranteed you'll double your money in six months. Come and do the presentation. Oh, by the way, maximum investment's ten dollars. It's like, oh, yeah, but it doesn't move your, your needle and you have to do a bunch of legal paperwork. It's just not going to go, right? So this is a problem that larger corporations I see all the time get into. They may be looking at different areas, but their ability to actually accept something that could be a significant change in their business at a rapid pace is not typically there. Is that something that you see as a problem to a larger scale corporation or something that maybe the smaller one should say or, or find ways to attract those kinds of opportunities as opposed to the carrot of the larger corporation that, that some of these folks might go to? Well, it's often why larger corporations buy small companies right. because the small companies can execute on it fast and will have executed on it fast before the large company can get off the start. The biggest company problem the larger company has from leadership point of view is to inspire people to embrace change. Frightening for many people. It's frightening for people. Even though everyone says, yes, they like change, I'm telling you, nobody likes change. I agree with you. And so to inspire people, what, what we need to do is paint the vision of what will life be when we have the new thing? What will life be if we don't do the new thing? I, I mean, my appliance business, perfect example. I'm going out to a bunch of appliance people and saying, uh, oh, this is not an appliance. This is a parcel mailbox. And they say, well, I'm a compressor engineer, and I like compressors. Where's the compressor? And someone else saying, yeah, but we sell through appliance stores. And well, we also sell through Costco and Home Depot and Lowe's and stuff. But you, you get that pushback to say, oh, it's not what I do. I don't have competitive advantage. But you, you inspire them to say, yes, but we, we will now be a growth company. In the case of a, a parcel guard type product, there's 70 million standalone households in North America, I believe within a decade. 70% of them will have some sort of parcel solution because they don't want parcels to be stolen. That's 50 million units over 10 years. So they'll get replaced at the same rate as freezers once a decade. So the ongoing demand is 5 million units. We only make 2 million appliances a year. If we get 20% market share, we've, we've increased our size by 50%. If we get 10%, it's still half a million units. It's a, it's a really good market for us. So it comes down to not just the board member, but the leadership team or the CEO who's working with the board to be able to create that vision in a story that totally engages not just the employee base because change is happening and it's frightening, but in telling them how this is going to make the world a better place. It's being able to to sell, which not everybody can do other than, you know, rattle off numbers and the, and the financial opportunity. Exactly. But good leaders need to be able to sell. Selling is a 101. Right. And how people sell is, is different. I mean, some people are extroverted and sell like used car salespeople. Other people <laughs> are engineers who sell... Uh, using statistics and numbers, and that's all good too, right? Right. I guess it's how you paint the, the canvas. Exactly. You've had some challenges in painting canvases before. I'll use that imagery. And I want to take a step, step back because my beloved Blackberry, and <laughs> I still actually have three of my Blackberries in my desk drawer because I won't give them up. I'm convinced that they're going to be worth something at some point in time. <laughs> what happened there? I mean, is it something that you can share as the, the changes happened with BlackBerry, it was the go-to model. It was the one that everybody had. This was the Cadillac that, right. uh, that people wanted and loved. I mean, they were so attached to it more than the Apple, I would say. Right. So I think there's a few things happened. Arrogance set in. Mm -hmm. And because BlackBerry was the leader, the be-all and the end-all, 
then they beat up the carriers. And the BlackBerry doesn't function unless you have Verizon and AT&T and, you know, T-Mobile and all of that. So they beat up the carriers so that when another entrant came in, the carriers were open to another entrant because Mm -hmm. they were feeling beat up by BlackBerry. BlackBerry discounted Apple by basically... So you had a bunch of business people, business-oriented, keyboard, and it's all about email and email efficiency. Why do you want music in that? Like, business people don't want music. That's a toy and whatnot. So it was was underestimating it, combined with the price point of the Apple is pretty high. So you said, oh, nobody's going to pay that much for an Apple. At the same time, you've got the groundswell of Android coming in the other side, and BlackBerry was staying proprietary. BlackBerry missed the app. Mm Mm-hmm. And uh, which was very interesting because Apple is a closed architecture that didn't allow third-party peripherals much or third-party. They, they were not very open to third-party. Then when their iPhone, they basically opened it up to third-party. So it's very interesting change. So it's a combination of flow of different things that caused the issue. And I think a lot of it stemmed from arrogance. It's like the uh, car maker in Detroit looks out the window and says, well, no one's buying Japanese cars. I just look out my parking lot. They're all American cars. So Nobody ha- buys those Japanese cars, right? It's, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I remember when the Toyota first came in, my dad, a business partner, had one. And he's like, what are you driving that piece of junk for? But guess what? Well, it, well that and that's the way we used to think, isn't it? Right. Like, the, oh, the, nobody's going to buy uh, this foreign car. And now, gee, they make pretty good cars. You they know? do make pretty good cars. Absolutely. But it's the same thing we did with Tesla. Everyone underestimated them and Absolutely. said, uh, oh, well, no, they're never going to be able to compete with GM and Ford. Like, they, well, yeah. you know, they're kind of giving them a run. Never say never. Exactly. So what do you think the board in this particular case could have done? Did they see the arrogance? Was there any warning signs that could have helped them step in and say, whoa, wait a second, we need to basically get our act together here and regroup faster? There was uh, warning signs, there was discussion, but there maybe wasn't the degree of assertiveness needed. Mm -hmm. But I left the board in 2010. So so I left it more or less at the time things started to unravel. Mm-hmm. And um, should the board have stepped up more aggressively? Possibly. Uh, the other thing that happens over time as a company grows is boards become less, I'm going to call them innovative board, coaching boards, and more governance boards. Right. So BlackBerry became very government, very governance, very mm-hmm. legal mm-hmm. because they got caught in a couple of little legal things. So it became, oh, let's have lawyers run the company where the early board is like, oh, here's a product feature. What do you think of that product feature? Oh, I don't think, uh, you know, we should do it in black. Let's do it in gray or whatever, right? Was- so they were truly more engaged early on in the nuances of the business as opposed to the obstacles that were in the way from a legal and financial perspective. Exactly. So it's not that I don't believe in governance, but at some point the governance can swamp and overwhelm the board and take almost precedent over... And of course, you're, when you're public, there's that added dimension there as well, right? Right. Just sort of thinking a little differently in the boardroom environment, because we do need both. However, in some cases, maybe it's better to have an outside group or legal counsel looking over that area. I mean, that's what your general counsel is really supposed to be overseeing in many cases and advising the board on the legal aspects of what's happening in the environment. Getting that balance, would you say that there might be some different ways of looking at how the board of the future might balance that out as more and more regulation comes in? Do we look at splitting the board into maybe two different distinct groups where one specifically deals on the more structured 
governance, legal, restrictive compliance area. And another aspect of the board are the ones that actually are involved in in being the ones that know where the shifts are taking place and can provide the right guidance and advice because boards are not big. Right. I mean, many companies have that. It's called an advisory board versus a fiduciary board. The fiduciary right. board deals with the legal right. and the governance, and that's the way uh, you know boards are becoming more like that. But to some extent, I also believe that's based on company size. Okay. The larger the company, the more likely it is to be more legal. The smaller the company, the more likely it's to be more more nimble, just like the whole company, not just the boards, it's the whole company mm-hmm. itself. Yeah, I haven't seen advisory boards really used the way that you said as truly advisory pushing and being creative and, and innovative. I see them more as outside salespeople more than any you know dog and pony shows. Well, it depends on how the management chooses to use the board. The problem with advisory boards is often management says, uh, okay, we're just going to have some marquee names on the advisory board. Oh, they're mm-hmm. going to do some introductions for us. We're not going to listen to them. The advantage of fiduciary board is essentially that you can fire the CEO. They report to the board. Right. And right. so there's a power thing that is real and does exist. In some cases, it's not as real as it would be theoretical in governance because often the CEO controls the company, even though the shareholders elect the board. But if if the CEO controls the shareholder group, then uh, right. essentially they, they elect the board. What do you think about the whole concept of having the CEO on the board? And you bring that up. Is that something that we should be doing at all? Because the Canadian way of doing things is slightly different, although fairly similar to the U.S. And sometimes there's a, there's a little yin and a yang that might even be better in Canada than what we do here in the States. I personally don't think the CEO should be on the board once a company is uh, certainly not if they're public or as they get larger. I mean, CEOs would get invited to all the board meetings. CEOs would participate in most of the stuff, but so is likely the CFO. So is likely other management. But I personally believe best practices CEO should not be on the board once it's a public company. And However, I do understand why it is because often it's the entrepreneur and they own half the company or whatever, right? Well, that's a whole other environment because you also see public companies where boards do not know how else to reward a CEO. So they bring them onto the board. That's a, a promotion. But how further up can you go in the board, in the company when you're the CEO? You can't. Right. So they elevate them to a board position. Now, all of a sudden, they have more say in the board. Two, then they don't know what to do because they have no place else to go. So they make them chairman of the board. <laughs> right. I mean, and the list goes on and on and on. So in that particular case, the challenge is, where's the balance of power? And in a strong, competent, uh, talented CEO, sometimes they're better than the board members themselves. Then you end up with a weak board. I mean, in most cases, you actually want the CEO to be more competent than the board as far as in that business, right. because the CEO wakes up every morning, eats and lives and breathes it and sleeps it at night. That's what, they're, that's what they should be doing. It is very common for boards to board members to have four, three or four boards, and they have other interests and they have other background, which is part of the purpose they serve because they've been there, done that, done other things. And so the board isn't immersed in the day-to-day like the CEO, but a good CEO is immersed in the, the details. They better be. <laughs> they, they better be. Now, I do find that boards naturally let CEOs who are performing well have more rope, as they should. Right. And CEOs who aren't doing as well tend to get um, that's where they, rain so, yeah, the board starts to rein them in. That, that's where boards can tend to start managing the company. What do you mean? We didn't make our numbers for the last three quarters. Well, we better tell them they have to have to do this. Then we become very directive because 
we're worried about the performance of the company and we think that they're not doing it. Where if you have a CEO who's delivering the numbers, my thing is, oh, thank you. Just keep delivering numbers. Oh, by the way, here's a couple of ideas. Here's an introduction I can do. And if it, if it works out great, just let me know. I don't, uh, I'm not telling you you have to, if that makes sense. What, what would you recommend to directors or board members or even CEOs today to ratchet up the strength of a board so that they can be more beneficial to a leadership team? Or are we just fine the way things are? Well, it's easy to talk about best practices. I think board terms are a good idea. And I know many times there are board terms, but they're not real. Right. It's age, right? You, you get elected. You, right. You get elected. Okay. So aging out is a good one. So have a, an age limit, possibly. But keep to it. Some people can say that's ageist. Yeah. Some people say that's ageist. But even if you don't have an age limit, having some sort of turnover in the board is logical. To some extent, it's appointment for life. In many cases. I call it the only death do you part job other than maybe, you know, marriage if you don't get divorced. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Divorce, divorcing a director is not done very often and just doesn't seem collegial. It's not And a so how do new board positions come up? Well, when someone does age out, but even then, what is aging out? Now, I, the problem with age is it's a right. number and I know some uh, 70-year-olds who are much better shape than 60-year-olds, and I know some 80-year-olds who are much brighter than the two of us combined. Correct. Matter, matter of fact, my mother-in-law is 104. Wow. She's certainly bright. Yeah. I'll assign her up for my board. <laughs> <laughs> She's hired. <laughs> so, so term limits is certainly not necessarily age, but maybe a, a six to eight years or 10 years type yeah, of factor. Exactly. That's my belief, yeah. Right. And anything else that you think that we could do to try and make boards more of a, a greater asset other than fly in, fly out, not that they all do that. But is there something, is there some extra sort of like secret sauce you, you could recommend? And it depends obviously on the stage of the company too. It does. I believe in having uh, at least an annual strategy board meeting. Mm-hmm. And a strategy board meeting is where you do talk about strategy, you do talk about product, you talk about channel, you talk about customers, you talk about that. The problem I've seen with some boards is they just show up every quarter and it's a beauty contest. Here's the sales, here's the margin, here's the, you know, we did this, we did that, here's the new products and okay, great, let's go out for dinner. And uh, it's um, perfunctory and I always tell C- CEOs, if I'm on a board, I don't want a beauty contest. Right. I add no value if it's a beauty contest. I'm going to go in and tell you all that we're doing right and, and try to hide anything we did wrong and minimize it. And that was all everybody else's mistake. The best uh, CEOs are ones that are somewhat vulnerable. Not sure whether this parcel guard will sell. Do you think we should do it this way, do it that way? Blah, blah, blah. You're way better off to do that than to say with bravado, this is what we're doing and this, we know exactly the path. So an annual strategy session is a great one. Maybe also in, an, in a regular board meeting, instead of a presentation, the whole discussion is one of nothing more than questions. Right. Which could be right. very interesting. It forces, it forces people out of their comfort zone as far as being you know, pontificating senses of authority or kings and queens of authority, those that have to do nothing more than question and ask questions and maybe answer a question with a question, which is not easy for us to do. No, I, I believe completely in the power of questions, and that is actually one of the ways that people think I'm a polite board member. Ah. Because I don't say, I ask. And by asking the, and by asking the you, question... But you say something you don't know, right? Well, you know, I, I don't know what's going on. Can you explain it to me? Well, and it also gets a little bit more focus on things, even though I'm not saying, 
I'm worried about your employee relations. I would, you can ask, so have we, you know, what are we doing around employee surveys? Are our employees happy? It's rather than saying what's wrong. And by asking the question, you can get more focus. So board member more as therapist than as uh, a director. <laughs> right. <laughs> Being directive. That's, yeah. that's exactly right. That's exactly right. And by nature, CEOs have to have, uh, they tend to be fairly high ego and they tend to be fairly definitive. And so it, asking questions is a way better way of getting people focused on things. Why was the gross margin down? And then they think, oh, maybe we should look at the gross yeah. margin. seems to be down. Yeah. Interesting. I think that this has been a really fabulous discussion. And just to think a little differently about the boardroom and the discussion that goes on is really something that could very well be of benefit to boards. In fact, I was talking to a company the other day who was just just thinking about the way of, of director succession. They They were having a very difficult time even getting anybody interested to serve on their board. And and all I could think of was starting asking questions like, do you really know who you are? Do you know what you want? What are the problems? You know, how can you engage people in a way so they're excited and they want to be part of you? Do you believe that story or is it just a bunch of smoke and mirrors? If it is, how do you live it as a board so that you really can engage and instill that excitement in outside potential directors let alone if that's the case, you probably don't even have it in your own company. So let's go back to square one. Yeah. Yeah. So it was it was kind of an interesting, interesting discussion. So Jim, this has been fabulous. I appreciate it. Are there any sort of final words of last words of wisdom that you would give to a CEO or a, somebody looking to be on a board even or on their first board who might just sort of be feeling like they're a deer in the headlights? Anyone who wants to be on a board, they have to realize this is a very, very long-term networking project. And because we already talked about boards, members tend to be appointments for life. They don't turn over that often. And so it's a networking uh, job to get out there and it requires persistence much more than actually getting a job. It tends to be a long-term thing. Uh, it's, a, it's a long road, and people do who want to be on boards. I've always explained to them, you, you are typically used to selling the corporation that you serve, is selling that brand, and that's comfortable. But when you have to turn around and promote yourself as the individual, the individual as the product that's for sale, it's very hard. Those of us who have been entrepreneurs and have done this from the ground up, no problem. Well, we have good days and we have bad days, I should say. <laughs> Not no problem. <laughs> Our egos get bruised too. But it's a very difficult challenge I see for those who have been in the corporate world and just do not know how to sort of turn the, and shine the light on themselves in a way that is going to uh, attract the butterfly to the rose, shall we say. But I think it's just like doing any very, very long-term sale. And that is, yes. say you're interested in a board, make sure that people know what your background is, what kind of board and then keep in touch with them. The ideal way to keep in touch with people is not to push, push, push yourself. It's to try to help the other person, which it's old-fashioned sales Deliver. personship. Like, do you know who you're, who you're courting here? And uh, can you send them uh, a link to the latest coronavirus uh, thing if you think that might be of interest to them? Yeah. Which, if they're on boards the boards all would want to see links to some stuff, right? Absolutely. Making it personal goes a long way, as my dad used to say. 
we're all connecting at that level, hopefully at some point. And if not, those are probably not the people you want to work with. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. Well, great, Jim. Thank you very much. I've really appreciated your time and, and your thoughtfulness in this discussion here at the boardroom's best. Please stay in touch, and I will definitely stay in touch, and we look forward to future conversations down the road as well, and being of help to you and Shipper B and and Danby. Great. Looking forward to it. Take care, Jim. Bye-bye. Thanks. Boardroom's Best is brought to you in part with the support of Resources Global Professionals, the company that delivers intellectual capital on demand to the world's most recognized companies and corporate leaders. RGP, Resources Global the experts you want to call when you need experience to solve your business problems. www.rgp.com